Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Under Pressure. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Gentleness and Respect. I think when we read 1 Peter, which is, of course, a book directed at persecuted Christians, that we're well served to remember that Christians are not the only ones who suffer, or for that matter, we're the only ones who are persecuted. You know, communist countries or dictatorships, they have a long history of persecuting all religious groups. See, the reality is, depending on where you live, there are other groups that are more persecuted than are Christians. Suffering at the hands of others, that's an experience of all people groups. But of course, not all people who suffer at the hands of others are innocent. See, we all know that. I mean, you might be a criminal and the police have apprehended you, the courts have tried you, and you're in prison. It may be a bitter experience, and I can only imagine that it is. And if you're listening to my voice, don't hear my condemnation. That already took place in the courts. My heart's moved by your plight, even while it is a warranted suffering. But as we begin our text today, we notice that it begins with the word to believers. It says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? See, that is under most circumstances, those who seek to do good, as opposed to those who seek to do evil, aren't harmed. And please also remember that Christians aren't the only ones who seek to do good. In Peter's day, one could expect a great many pagans also sought to do good to their neighbors and obey the laws and went to work in the morning and took care of their families. And we have to acknowledge that the Christian faith is in places, I mean, completely on par with forms of behavior that are considered good everywhere. But we also acknowledge that there are good things specific to the Christian faith, and they include honoring and glorifying Jesus and all that we do. And is this specific form of good that can be a reason for persecution? There were in the first century a number of reasons why people might think that Christians were an unsavory bunch. I mean, for one, Christians were often accused of atheism. You know, that might strike many as strange, but remember, they said there was but one God. They didn't acknowledge the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, and that was a problem. They also refused to pour out offerings to Caesar or to the gods. And for this reason, some people thought of Christians as subversives and as unpatriotic. That was a problem. And then there were the unfounded rumors. Christians were involved in cannibalism. I mean, after all, they speak of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus at their love feasts. And so there were reasons why some people might think that well, Christians are troublemakers. And despite the fact that they do good, they would still want to persecute them. And today I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 17. And you'll remember that Peter was warning believers to expect suffering. And there were those who, when believers refused participation in temple sacrifices, thought that Christians were disloyal to their cities and thus were leading an anti-government revolution. They were thought of as treasonous people. So let's read our text. It's 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
those who reviled your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What I'm going to do today is to take some time with verses 15 and 16 because, you know, those verses are at the center of what Peter wants believers to do. Be ready to explain your faith, he says. Engage in relationships with non-Christians. Explain who you are. But before we get into the details in the middle of the text, let's remember the context. Verse 13, Peter begins with a question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? See, at the outset, the believers in Asia Minor would have said, lots of people are going to harm us. Our neighbors, our city, our trade guilds, the temple, the Romans, we are vulnerable. See, some Bible teachers claim that in verse 13, Peter must have in mind eternal harm, saying, who will eternally be able to harm you? In other words, for them, this is a passage that, you know, just tells believers to be bold. See, I don't agree with that interpretation. What Peter is trying to do in verse 13 is to reinforce behavior among Christians that will lessen misunderstanding and that will endear God's people to the wider pagan culture. No one, he says, persecutes people for being gentle and kind and loving and caring. That's the kind of behavior that he's talking about here. The culture you live in may be misunderstanding of your faith, but if you become known as people of graciousness, well, you're already halfway home. And by the way, that's still important today. Nothing is so disarming as the person who forgives their enemies, as someone who looks for opportunities to bless others, who volunteers for social endeavors, who helps out in their local school, or who looks for ways to encourage others. Now, these kinds of attitudes open the door for the gospel. But where Christians are seen to be ungracious, the size of misunderstandings grows larger, and the way to the gospel is an uncrossable barrier. See, sometimes I meet Christians who are ungracious, and they, you know, they say they're being persecuted. But hear me, no one likes ungracious people. See, it doesn't matter if you're Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or atheist. Sometimes we're disliked simply because we're disagreeable. And Peter wants his hearers to be known in the non-believing world as people who are eager for doing good. See, that builds bridges to people. So now to the beginning of verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And the grammar here suggests this. In the unlikely event that people do persecute you for being gracious, don't be discouraged. You are blessed. So continue to read. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So how is it that that in an increasingly hostile culture, you can be free from intimidation? And the answer is because in your heart, you are regarding Christ as Lord. That is, he's fully equal with a father. He's the second person of the one God. He rules over all, and as ruler, all things are subject to him, even the hostility in your culture. But of course, Peter's not just telling us to regard Christ the Lord, but to regard Christ the Lord as holy. So what's he trying to communicate there? Well, there's a background to that statement, and it comes from Isaiah 8, verse 13, and it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. See, if you're going to fear anybody, fear God. Fear Christ. Regard him as holy, and let your fear be of him alone. And once that happens, well, it's going to take away your fear of people, even people who might intimidate and persecute you. 
Only the one who fears God can know what it is not to fear man. Now, we're talking about getting prepared to give an answer to anyone for the hope that is within us. So let's start with a principle. People who can defend their faith well must also be courageous people. And if the truth is told, there are some believers who are actually intimidated or constantly intimidated by the world and the thought systems in our culture. And so you can say to yourself, well, the best thing to do then is to believe the gospel, but to keep fairly private about it. You've been flying under the radar, so to speak. And up till now, very few of the unbelievers that you interact with actually know that you're a believer. Or even if they do, you've never entered into a meaningful dialogue with them for the reason for your faith. And it's motivated primarily out of fear. But if you learn to regard Jesus the Lord as holy, it will give you a courage to enter into the arena of discussing your faith openly with others. But there's another feature that Peter's already mentioned. See, when we enter into dialogue, well, it sure helps to have a good reputation with people before the dialogue starts. See, we must have honorable conduct going in. So we come now to the heart of the text, which is verse 15b. And there Peter writes, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet you do it with gentleness and respect. So let's break that down into the phrases that we see here. First, always be prepared. And what's behind that statement is that Christians have themselves already thought about some of the questions that non-Christians are asking And they know about some of the misconceptions that non-Christians already have about the faith. And they have become deeply intimate with their faith, and they are well-grounded in it. And what's more, they've begun to grasp that there is a rational basis for their faith. And because of all of that, they walk very easily and disarmingly into a dialogue with non-Christians. You see, they're both courageous and they're insightful at the same time. In Deuteronomy 11:19, we find instruction on our commitment to the teaching of the Bible. We are to teach His Word to our children, wherever we are, at any time of day. And that's the significance of our 11:19 Fellowship monthly partner program. So if you choose to join this monthly program, you're partnering with us to ensure that Bible teaching is being taught faithfully and abundantly. One monthly partner said, if your heart is to see Christians grow in maturity in their walk with the Lord and to see lives transformed and turned towards Jesus, I would encourage you to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada through their 1119 Fellowship Program. To join or for more information or to offer a single gift towards our dollar-for-dollar fiscal year-end match campaign, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that unless you're well able to defend your faith, don't attempt evangelism. Attempt it. But I am saying that when you begin to share your faith, people will ask you questions you'll not be able to answer. And when that happens, you can do a number of things. You know, one, you can fake it. You can make up answers as you go, and and that's always bad. People see that. Second, you can say, well, 
All those questions are just from the evil one, and that's a failure to listen to others. Or three, you can decide to get prepared. You can begin to ask. You can begin to study. You can begin to understand. You can be prepared. Go to the next phrase. The word here says to give a defense, and the Greek word for defense is the word apologia. And from that word comes an area of Christian studies today that has been called Christian apologetics. It's a field of Christian theology that's devoted to giving a rational defense for the Christian faith. And people in the field of apologetics often say things like, well, the heart can't rejoice in what the mind rejects as false, and and things like helping the believer think and helping the thinker believe and all that kind of stuff. And, And behind all of that is that sometimes apologetics which we think is all about evangelism, in fact, has another benefit. Sometimes the study of apologetics is a great help for Christians themselves because many of us have the very same questions that others have. Questions like, is it ever okay to have doubts? And uh, what role does scientific evidence play into, you know, my faith? Early on, you know, soon after I came to Christ, I struggled with my own doubts. I wondered to what extent I had come to believe simply because, you know, I was having emotional struggles in my life. I mean, was there any objective reason for believing? How did I really know there was a God? How did I really know the Bible was the Word of God? I mean, were these the kinds of things that I should simply accept on faith, that is, without any corroborating evidence, or was faith actually something that rested in the sufficiency of the evidence? See, I can't tell you the the delight I had as I was discipled by Christian teachers who believed that asking hard questions wasn't wrong, but was welcomed. And I began to read. I mean, very early on, I read two books that really changed my life, and they were both by the late theologian Francis Schaeffer. And the books were entitled The God Who Is There, and the second one was He Is There and He Is Not Silent. And even though Schaeffer is now long dead, I still recommend those books to students, especially if you're attending a university. I mean, his thinking has profoundly shaped me in my early years. But out of that came a conviction that the Christian faith was defendable. Indeed, it was reasonable. I could answer the hard questions. In fact, it did more. It invited non-Christians to face their own hard questions. Indeed, they too needed to defend their worldview. And as I went off to university, I was a young man then, I was was constantly defending my faith and asking non-believers to defend their worldview or their faith. And those years were, for me, some of the best years of my life as I learned to depend more and more on the truths of Scripture. And out of that was born a conviction. All Christians can be trained to answer those who ask. We don't need to be afraid of tough questions. In fact, we should not only answer them, but we should ask our own tough questions to those who believe differently. And so remember where where we've been. One, we must be courageous. We must learn to speak out about our faith and ask others to speak about theirs. Make faith a part of your conversation with people. Not only do you have faith, so do they in something. Get them to tell you about their faith. Secondly, we must have honorable conduct. So we can't be charged with being, you know, bad and ungracious in our attitudes. And added to that, we must be prepared to give real answers. So Peter speaks about making a defense of our faith when asked. Now notice the last part of the verse. Here the unbeliever asks the believer for a reason for the hope within them. And I notice that in this verse, the non-Christian is doing the asking. That is because the believer has been bold enough to share. And as a result, the unbeliever asks. Perhaps the conversation goes this way. 
I've noticed that you refuse to pour out libations to Caesar and you refuse to call him Lord, but I also noticed that you've expressed your willingness to honor the emperor. I mean, how do you reconcile that? I recently had a conversation with a university professor and it went this way. He said, how do you define faith? I've heard that faith means believing in something that can't be substantiated by the evidence. Is that what you believe? And with that question came you know, an amazing dialogue between us. And that's what Peter has in mind. What are we being asked to do then is to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall become like wool. See, I've often noticed this offer, which is an offer to come and be forgiven. It begins with an offer to reason. All people who share their faith should be trained to use Scripture as we talk about our faith. But we're not quoting Scripture as if it were a missile or a club to win the argument. We're quoting Scripture in such a way that not only appeals to the heart, but also to the mind. It helps the unbeliever grasp the thoughts of Scripture and evaluate whether or not he thinks or she thinks it's true. Let me see if I can illustrate that. Let's say you're having a dialogue with an unbeliever about sin. And he says, I don't think people are sinful. And you say, well, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see what you've done? You're using Scripture as a missile, and that kind of thing usually ends in frustration. Let me suggest another approach. The unbeliever says, you know, I don't think that people are sinful. And you respond by saying, when you talk about sin, what do you mean? And that might start a dialogue. And you might say, can I share a definition of sin from the Bible? And he agrees, and then you quote 1 John 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. Now, you have a definition, and you can discuss what that means. Now, whether they eventually see that the Creator has given His creation divine laws and that we've ignored them, we've broken them, well, that takes some time. But you see what you can do. You don't have to use your Bible as a discussion stopper. You can use your Bible as a tool to help the person understand the Christian faith. And I think that's what Peter means by giving an answer, yet doing it with gentleness and respect. And Peter's not done. He adds one more feature. It's in verse 16. He speaks about those who slander you that they might be put to shame. Three more things are necessary in your dialogue with an unbeliever. And the first is gentleness, which is listed by Paul as one of the fruits of the Spirit. It means not raising your voice, not being harsh. The second is respect, and it's an interesting word because the actual Greek word here is fear. Now, Peter has just told us in verse 14 not to be afraid of people, but here he uses it in the sense of respect. You see, no matter who the person is, regardless of his or her perspective, that person is still a human being made in the image of God. Respect is demanded. And finally, Peter speaks of having a good conscience. That is, when the conversation is done, can we in good conscience say we've represented Christ well? See, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, Paul writes Timothy a warning against people who have an unhealthy interest in controversies and those who want to quarrel about words. See, that's good counsel for all of us who are prepared to give an answer. Every one of us knows that, you know, every once in a while we'll meet someone who only wants to bait us into an argument. There's a lot of heat, but not much light. I mean, perhaps you're a person who's easily baited into such an argument. It's better to walk away from those, just leave them. The Bible tells us that God's servants must not be quarrelsome. You should know that you can never argue someone into the kingdom. You can only get their backs up. 
I always recommend that when it comes to an argument, try to find some gracious way out of it. Say, you know, I haven't come here to offend you. Please forgive me if I have. Listen to Titus 3, 1 to 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And that seems to sum it up perfectly. Peter simply says that in our evangelism and in our defense of the gospel, we must be gentle and we must be respectful. And Peter then ends where he began. Verse 17 has him saying that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That's a great place to end. You might be articulate in your defense of your faith, and you might be gentle and gracious, always looking to bless others. And it still might come to be that you will suffer for your outward actions to glorify Christ. Indeed, says Peter, it might be God's will that you suffer. But Peter will have so much more to say about our suffering for doing good. But here he says, don't fear. God has a purpose for you, even if you should suffer. Thanks for your message, Sean. Let me ask you this, and I think it's important. Is it possible to share the truth of the Bible in such a way that even those who disagree with us feel respected? Yeah, I mean, that's what I've said. And I see, that's a great question, Ben, because, I mean, some people think that, you know, if I start sharing my faith, I'm going to lose all sorts of friends because, I mean, they feel that, you know, I've acted like a, I don't know, the proverbial you know, used car salesman. I, you know, I don't want to offend you if you're a used car salesman out there, but I mean, the proverbial used car salesman, that is to say, you know, pushing you into purchasing something you really didn't want. And that's not the Christian way. I mean, we actually believe that the Holy Spirit is wooing people and drawing them to Christ. And what we're doing is simply being open with our own faith and what Christ has done for us and how we've come to believe the Bible and why we've staked everything on the resurrection of Jesus. And we we can share all of that and uh, we can be respectful at the same time. So, uh, you know, I just recently had a conversation on an airplane with somebody who who's a dyed-in-the-wool Buddhist. And um, yet, in all of the conversation that I had, I don't think we ever got disrespectful. So I think this can be accomplished in, in just a number of different ways if we listen to God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. And Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical to God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there are times when you may miss the radio program. So we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebiblecanada.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series both audio and video with Dr. John. But you can also learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our mission is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is accessible to as many people in as many ways as possible. 
For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.